This is Africa Digest. Seventeen hundred hours Central African time. Hello and welcome to Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. We are coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa, and you can find us on frequency one five two three five kilohertz on the thirty one meter band to Southern Africa. My name is Spumela Lezondi, and this hour I'm with Onelenzinti, Wisani Matebula, and Wasibuni Bakura. Let's take a look at the top stories. Mauritania's main opposition parties boycott President Udabdelaziz's call for national inclusive dialogue. The Kingdom of Lesotho is today marking its 50th anniversary of independence from Great Britain. And UN officials say migrants and refugees being held on the Pacific island of Nauru are completely without hope. In business, Mozambique's state-owned oil company ENH says it had signed a sales agreement with BP for the sale of liquefied natural gas from the South Coral Field. And in sports, Maria Sharapova's doping ban has been reduced. Here's Onelenzinzi with your news. Thank you, Spoo. Vers University students in South Africa say they will not stop protesting until their grievances are heard. This follows the firing of rubber bullets by the police to disperse hundreds of protesting students outside the Great Hall at Wurz University. A strong police contingent remains at the campus. Student leader Mbojlamini says they are going to continue with their action. He added that students have no regard for the South African Union of Students as it does not represent the silent majority. We don't take South serious. We don't know what is South. South has no jurisdiction. South doesn't have a jurisdiction. Which university do they study? No one, South is not speaking for us. They are not speaking for the silent majority. This is a bunch of drunkards. This is a bunch of Niawape delinquents. This is a bunch of hungry youth which are masquerading as leaders of students. We are continuing with the fight. Meanwhile, Wurz University Vice-Chancellor Adam Habib has meanwhile defended management's decision to call in police, saying that according to a court interdict, protesting students weren't allowed to disrupt lectures and engage in violent protests. So the interdict effectively was, we have it live since uh, sometime in April, May. Effectively, the interdict was when students tried to stop the academic program some couple of months ago. And effectively that interdict says that nobody must be must try to disrupt the academic program, that effectively they could be arrested and they would be violation of a court order if they tried to vandalize, commit arson or disrupt the academic program and violate the rights of others. South Africa's Wurz University management is expected to meet this afternoon and map up a way forward regarding the protest action by the students. Burundi's government has dismissed the United Nations decision to set up a commission of inquiry to identify perpetrators of killings and torture. The UN Human Rights Council agreed on Friday to set up the commission, saying it would build on a report by UN experts who looked into the suspected torture and murder of government opponents. Government spokesperson Philippe Nzobo Nariba says the council failed to take into account Burundi's contribution to balance the report. 
South Africa's State Security Minister says cross-border officials are costing the country millions as cross-border crime escalates. In the most recent incident, 20 officials have been arrested along the Lesotho border. They had allegedly been taking bribes. Mashobo says he will ensure that corrupt officials at the borders are dealt with. There have been a lot of uh, advances in terms of securing of our borders, but the weaknesses they remain in terms of issues of corruption of our officials at the borders, the inadequate uh, technology that we are using, that is them. But more importantly, we are saying let's invest in infrastructure, let's invest in technology. But the officials that are working within our system, we must have them to have integrity. They must be vetted, do a lifestyle audit, rotate them. Because most of this illicit uh, movement of goods, commodities and so forth, they go through our own ends. And finally, Zimbabwean citizens are urging the government to respect people living with disability. During a stakeholders' consultative meeting aimed at aligning the old Disability Act with the new constitution, Zimbabwe's citizens cited that people living with disability in the country are sidelined due to the unavailability of a legal framework that protects them. At least 10% of Zimbabweans are said to be living with some form of disability, but the existing laws are not clear what disability is and how the people should be accorded their rights. Simon Muchema reports. In a country with at least 10% disability services in the country are said not to be conducive for most of them, especially the elderly and children. People living with disability require special care and government intervention, but as it stands, little is being done. As a result, Civil society organizations are pushing for a new legal framework that empowers people living with disability in line with the new constitution. Meanwhile, most of the affected during the consultative meeting in Harare Monday said government is not prioritizing issues affecting them. Channel Africa News, I'm Thank you very much on earlier time is 17.06 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance tweeters. We are on Channel Africa 1. Let's start in Mauritania where the country's main opposition parties have boycotted President Old Abdelaziz's call for national inclusive dialogue. They say they believe the dialogue is a covert agenda by the president to maintain power after he reaches constitutional term limits. Main opposition figures say the 10-day dialogue, which opened last Thursday, has lost its credibility as the political parties opposed to President Oud Abdelaziz have declined the invitation. FNDU, standing for the National Forum for Democracy and Unity and made up of several opposition parties, refused to attend the dialogue. About 450 participants from the ruling party and its allies, as well as civil society NGOs and Mauritanian Association based abroad, are taking part in the dialogue which has been in a standoff for two and a half years. More from Mauritanian-based political analyst Fadel Mohamed. Actually, what's happening here is something we've seen uh, like five years ago in uh, 2011 when the government called for a dialogue between uh, the opposition and uh, the majority. And what happened is only those parties who participated back then in 2011 are participating today which means that the dialogue is not inclusive at all. Since uh, the main of 
opposition party, which is the RSD, and the conglomerate of a party under the FNDE, which is the Front for Democracy and Unity, is not participating. And the second uh, party in the parliament, which is uh, uh, Tawasul, is not participating. Now, with the opposition refusing to attend this dialogue, what next? What next should they do now? Well, they just come out with a statement yesterday. The, the no participating uh, opposition, they come out yesterday with a statement saying that they have a plan B. So they haven't explained anything about that plan B, which they say is the one they would put forward in case they're not participating in the, in the dialogue. So, and uh, they're not participating in dialogue. We are waiting to see what the plan B is. I don't know if they're going to be taking it to the street or if they have uh, some other pressure they want to exercise the government. The opposition believes that the president wants to change the constitution and this dialogue ultimately will lead to a national referendum. Now, where does it leave this national referendum? Uh, okay, uh, the president say that He's not going to touch to the uh, article related to his election or re- re-election. As you know, the president is in his second term, which is supposed to be constitutionally his last. And he assured everybody publicly that he will not change the constitution to represent for the next election in 2019. But he'll have to change the constitution because we want to just eliminate the upper chamber of uh, the Senate. So to do that and to create a, a regional Senate in every region in the country, he needs actually to change the constitution. And what, he, what the government is saying that whatever comes out of the, the dialogue has to be approved by referendum. The president, I believe, is seeking a third term in office despite a constitutional ban. And I believe he also wants to be granted a third term in office in order for him to finish his development program. In your view, does this warrant him seeking a third term? No, he publicly stated that he will not change seeking a third term. He publicly said that many times. He repeated it. Still, opposition doesn't believe that. They believe that what he tries to do is by introducing some change to the Constitution, relating especially to the elimination of the Senate and to the change of uh, age in which you can be uh, a candidate to the country, which I believe is 72 years. And by doing that, he will put in it that provision that will allow him to run for a third term. But uh, he said otherwise, and we waiting to see. That is Mauritanian-based. That's Mauritanian-based political analyst Fadel Mohammed on the line with Ntlantla Matlangu. During stakeholders' consultative meeting aimed at aligning the Old Disability Act with the new constitution, citizens have urged Zimbabwean government to respect people living with disability. People living with disability in the country are sidelined due to the unavailability of a legal framework that protects them. At least 10% of Zimbabweans are said to be living with some form of disability, but the existing laws are not clear clear what disability is and how the people should be accorded their rights. More from our correspondent Simon Machema who's in Harare.
Zimbabweans living with disability have complained government is not acting fast enough to come up with new laws that protect them. In a country with at least 10% disability, services in the country are said not to be conducive for most of them, especially the elderly and children. People living with disability require special care and government intervention, but as it stands, little is being done. As a result, civil society organizations are pushing for a new legal framework that empowers people living with disability in line with the new constitution. Meanwhile, most of the affected during the consultative meeting in Harare Monday said government is not prioritizing issues affecting them. Bruce Nyoni, president of the Albino Trust of Zimbabwe, said, Right, the government first and foremost must treat us fair as persons living with disabilities. Secondly, we want probably transparency as far as that act is concerned. Its definition, how it defines disability itself. It's not even clear. So we want them to be clear on how they will be defining disability on its own. Like especially the issues to define, like uh, they will be talking about issues to say money. They will say we will assist the disabled persons due to the availability of funds. Meaning to say that if there are no funds, there is nothing for them. Look like the women. It's clear that for the women, this is going to be allocated. To the youths, it's clear that this is going to be allocated. But to the disabled persons, probably it's because probably they regard us as probably the low class or the outclass. We don't even know. So that's what we are here to air our views so that probably an element of change can come. Nyoni edit. We are so concerned that the government itself, they are not committed to fully implement especially our act. And the act itself is something which is meaningless. It doesn't go hand in glove with the constitution at all. We look especially on the arrangement of this meeting and the people who are here. These people, we are supposed to be having the minister from the Harare Metropolitan Province. They sent representatives of the very, very, very low profile. We receive the minister from the, from the social services. The people they send are the people to just say, ah, these are just people. You get what I'm saying? Insignificant to us. We are in pain, we want things to change. We want transparency, we want honestness. But the response that is give, being given by these people is an ISO. It's not even comforting at all. During the meeting, issues raised included health, service delivery, accessibility to institutions, poverty, and work-related problems. Stigma and marginalization is said to be the biggest challenge among people living with disability in the country. However, with the laws enacted in 1992, the new constitution of 2013 has now rendered most laws useless, hence the move to have them changed. Jonathan Yusuf Banda, a social worker with the Minister of Social Welfare, explained. So basically this is the process upon which we are trying to take input from all the grassroots and all the other levels of representation can always give us their feedback or their input via certain forums like the website that they were talking about. We'll take up uh, these grassroots contributions and come up with the principles that will then inform realignment of this particular principle act. Banda said people living with disability should be treated the same way like able-bodied people. One of the principal concerns is the need uh, to raise awareness that's within society. What they are saying is most of the time they find uh, society carrying over the stigma and discrimination or othering them is certain individuals who are worthy of certain assistance they are not accorded their total package of rights that's one then the other dimension is the aspect of sexual reproductive health rights 
where they are finding the stigma of asexualization or maybe them not being deemed as persons who have sexual rights just like all the others. Then um, another prime concern as well revolves around the issue of financing or that is socio-economic empowerment and uh, consideration in all the other processes that the government might implement for the totality of Zimbabwe. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Your time is 17.16 Central African time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Now, the Kingdom of Lesotho is today marking its 50th anniversary of independence from Great Britain. Lesotho, which is surrounded by South Africa, has experienced several coups since independence in 1966. Here's Jane Rabotata. Lesotho is a landlocked country that is completely surrounded by South Africa. The former British protectorate is also heavily dependent on South Africa as an employer and buyer of its main natural resource, water. Although the economy of this country is reliant on its limited agriculture, livestock, manufacturing and mining, the backbone of Lesotho's natural resource is water and diamonds. The capital of Lesotho is Maseru and the mountainous country, with a population estimated to be over 1.9 million, is currently ruled by Prime Minister Pakalita Musisidi. Languages spoken there are Sesotho and English, which is the official language. The Basotho people are well known for their use of horses as a mode of transport. It has been believed for many years that Lesotho people eat horse meat, hence they are called Bajapere. Lesotho has one of the world's highest HIV and AIDS infection rate, with one in every four people living with the infection. In 2004, Prime Minister Musisidi underwent a public HIV test and called for other African leaders to do the same as a drive to combat HIV. The political landscape of Lesotho has been under media watch recently. In 2014, there were reports that the Defence Force had attached police stations surrounding the then Prime Minister's official residence. That led to former Prime Minister Tom Tabane fleeing the country for refuge in South Africa after rumours of a coup attempt. Deputy President of South Africa Cyril Ramaphosa brokered talks in Lesotho and came up with an agreement dubbed Maseru Facilitation Declaration. Later after talks, the Lesotho government announced the 28th of February 2015 as election day. It was then that the Democratic Congress leader Musisidi made a comeback as Lesotho's Prime Minister, exactly 33 months after handing power to his all Basotho convention counterpart Tom Tabani. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Jane Rabutata in Johannesburg. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja, informing the world about Africa. Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Migrants and refugees being held on the Pacific island of Nauru are completely without hope. This is according to the United Nations Human Rights Office, or HCHR. Nauru has been operating an offshore processing center for the Australian government despite calls from the UN and other organizations to shut it down. A vast majority of the people in these centers were transferred by Australia to Nauru more than three years ago, many women have said they have been sexually assaulted at the center. Julia Dean has been speaking to Chitra Macy, who heads up OHCHR regional office in Fiji. For us, the main challenge continues to be the fact that people are being held in not just prolonged detention, but indefinite detention, which makes them completely without hope 
at the moment. There is no knowledge of when this detention or as they perceive it a punishment is going to come to an end. This brings with it a number of complications for them starting from the physical safety and security of the refugees themselves, the number of crimes reported against them, particularly of the sexual and gender-based violence against women and children, including boys, and the fact that there has been almost total impunity for any of these crimes. Adding to that complication is the fact that, as has been repeatedly said, prolonged detention brings with it a negative impact on mental health of individuals. We found that everything that we have reported on and raised as an issue of concern in our missions in the previous years still continues. What cases of abuse have you heard about? We have a number of cases of women who were raped who have been unable to report this and go to the police for fear of reprisals. We have a number of cases of men who have been beaten up or have been robbed. We have a number of cases of children who have been assaulted, either physically assaulted, sexually assaulted or threatened. Their mental condition being such, my team found that almost more than 90% or almost the entire population is either on antidepressants or on medication to help them to just make it through the day. Clearly an untenable situation, very shocking, very appalling especially given in light of the fact that it is easily avoidable to look for an alternate human rights-based approach to the situation. And what other recommendations has the Office for Human Rights made to the government of Nauru? We've given them a long list of recommendations, which include something as simple as making sure that people with urgent medical needs are provided that urgent medical need. Even if it needs evacuation to Australia, that must be a priority. Families that need support must be provided the support. Access to education is a fundamental human right and must be provided. Children in the refugee camps or the detention centres or now living within the community, all of them have not been able to go to schools. The vast majority are just at home. There has been one of the most alarming statistics on amount of self-harm done by children as young as six in this situation. Would you encourage the government to allow other human rights organisations to be allowed to visit? I think that would be a very welcome change. We would not only request the governments and encourage them to allow human rights organisations to be allowed to visit, but we think they should be, it should be much more open and much many more efforts to ensure that the appropriate health care and related professionals who are required be allowed to access these people to access the centers to access the community and to be allowed to speak up this should be a topic on everybody's table for discussion and do you call on the australian government to stop the offshore processing the office of the high commissioner for human rights has been consistent in this and the regional office stands by that position are you concerned that other member states may use the same type of offshore processing elsewhere i think that unfortunately It is a possibility. As we all know, it's been in the media that there was a delegation from the Danish parliament and some of them used the word inspiration. And the fact is that um, the Office of the High Commissioner for Human Rights has been concerned about the issue of the treatment of asylum seekers and migrants throughout the globe. And we have been finding similar 
challenges cropping up in other issues. So therefore, it does continue to be a concern. It's not something we could just put aside saying that it's not possible, no other government will take inspiration from it. We remain concerned. We believe that the government of Australia has had a commendable human rights performance record in the past and this is an unfortunate incident which is doing a lot of damage to the reputation of the state and we believe that uh, there is an opportunity to rectify that and to stand um, as a model in the region to show that even if something has been done that violated certain international obligations of the state, the state has the courage to rectify it. That is Chitra Macy, who is the head of the United Nations Human Rights Office in Fiji. She was talking to UN Radio's Chitra Macy. It's 17.24 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Pomelo Lezondi and I'm with you until 1800 hours Central African time this evening. Now yesterday the world marked World Habitat Day proclaimed by the United Nations General Assembly more than one decade ago with the aim of informing the world that every human being deserves a right to a conducive habitat. In the Kenyan coastal city of Mombasa, the victims of forced evictions converged at Coblenz Hall to mark the day. Our reporter Diana Wanyonyi was there and she filed this report for us. Staring silently at several still pictures of evictees hanged on the wall at Comblens Hall which were taken during the demolition of their houses in few months ago in Dongokundu area in Mombasa County, Ali Kiyoko remembered well how he sustained knee injuries during evictions in 2011. I was born there and my parents died there, was buried there. When the gangs and the police come to my area where I stay, they come and they say, stay the way you are if you want your, your life to be secure. We try to tell them where is the court order of this eviction. They beat me, they get me an injury on my knee. The police were there, many, with dogs, with pangas and shepherds. Tractor do away with our house. The area that Tinga does not go in, that gang. They used to break that area. The hanging of more than 50 pictures inside the hall not only brought back unforgotten memories, but also some visible pain and anger from some of the people who were forcefully evicted from the place they call home. Peter Suli, the father of one child, narrated how he was beaten by police officers who were evicting them in Dongokundu area and how the trauma is still fresh when he sees the police. The moment I just entered that uh, place where the demolitions were taking place, I was arrested on the spot. Then I was bundled into the lorry of the police and they beat me up. I challenged them that uh, you are not supposed to be robots. That's when they stopped now beating me. They let me go. That's affected me because you can see some marks on my face. eh? I usually panic sometimes when I hear police. So this day means so much to me because I've developed hope. Because I know maybe there's somebody somewhere who is concerned about our plight. Most of the evictions in Mombasa occur in order to pave way for new developments such as construction of the standard gauge railway between the port of Mombasa to Nairobi and the Dongokundu Bypass Highway that will connect Kenya's south coast with Mombasa Island and which is scheduled for completion in 2018. According to the Amnesty International, it is not yet freedom for the evictees who are still living in poverty. Naomi Baraza is a campaign organizer at Amnesty in Kenya.
While it's important for us to commemorate this day, it is not yet time to celebrate. It is time to reflect, it is time to take stock, and it's time to hold our government to account on the commitment that our government has made in international human rights instruments, but also in our constitution 2010. We do not have law that stipulates in the event an eviction is necessary, how it will be undertaken. So a lot of evictions are done at the mercy of the evictor. She urged the Kenyan government and county governments to enact laws on evictions so as to reduce such forced actions. These rights require that a law is enacted by the national government of Kenya on how eviction procedures will be. But also the county government are to be held to account because they have the obligation to enact county law, which should also stipulate clearly how evictions should be carried out in the county. According to the police officer in charge of Mombasa Island, Lucas Ogara, forceful eviction is an offense adding that the police act within the law when evicting people who have grabbed land. Tunaambia raia kwamba wakai kwa mani na kila muta kuna haki ya kukaa mali na kaa. We are telling citizens to live peaceful amongst themselves because every person has a right to stay where they are. And we also want to say that forceful eviction of people is an offense and we are urging the public to inform us on time so that we can take necessary actions. We are aware that there are some people who are forced to evict in a given place, but it is supposed to be an order from the courts but not just evicting people like that. We will not allow that. That was Lucas Ogara, officer in charge of the police on Mombasa Island, and I am Diana Wanyonyi in Mombasa. It's time for your news headlines now. Here's Onelen Sinti. South Africa's Wurz University Management meets to map a way forward regarding the protest action by students at, as student protests intensifies. Court rules Nigeria should release former security advisor and Zimbabwean citizens urge government to respect people living with disability. Channel Africa News, I'm Onelensinzi. Seventeen thirty Central African time is still listening to Africa Digest right here on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Pomela Lazondi. Remember that you can find us on Twitter. It's Channel Africa One. If you want to send us emails, it's info at channelafrica.co.za. That is info at channelafrica.co.za. Now, the executive director of the United Nations World Food Program, Ethrin Cousin, is in Madagascar for a three-day visit as the country comes to grips with the devastating impact of three years of drought. The country's government recently expressed solidarity with other countries in the region afflicted by this year's El Nino weather event. To speak to us more about this, we're joined on the line from Antananarivo by the communications officer for the WFP, David Orr. Hello and welcome to Channel Africa, David. Hi, thank you very much. Yes, I am in uh, Antananarivo, the capital of Madagascar. Um, uh, David, what necessitated this visit? Sorry, could you say that again, please? Uh, could you just tell us what necess- necessitated the visit by Etherin Cousin? Well, she has long wanted to come here. Um, this is her first visit 
um, to the island. And I think really just to see for ourselves the extent of the situation here and also to draw attention to it. She's been meeting... We seem to have lost the communications officer for the WFP, David Orde, um, who is in Antananarivo in Madagascar. We will try to get him back on the line um, and we will continue that conversation with him in a minute. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya, and you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's only official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. Informing the world about Africa, Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. It's 17.33 Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we are trying to get back on the line David Orr from the World Food Program to talk about um, Ethrin Cousin who is the director of the United Nations World Food Program um, who is currently in Antananarivo in Madagascar to find out about the effects of the drought that's taking place there. Let's move on. We'll try to get him back. Now a study published in the peer-reviewed scientific journal the Public Library of Science has detailed how the higher intake of saturated fats uh, associated with higher mortality while an saturated fat intakes are linked to lower health and heart disease, making them an essential part of a balanced diet. Each year, heart disease and stroke claim the lives of around 17 million people around the world. More from Vanessa Clark. Vanessa Clark is a dietitian in private practice in South Africa. We know, obviously, last week being World Heart Day, there there needs to be more awareness around heart disease. It's one of the leading killers around the world. And there's a lot of controversy about what should be included in one's diet and how we should be eating and what our lifestyle should involve. And so this study really was necessary because it it was um, done with a large amount of participants and it really gives us a good idea in terms of what should we be doing to prevent heart disease, to reduce the statistics around those dying from cardiovascular disease every single year? 
the study notes the difference between saturated and unsaturated fats and how that uh, impacts on the human body. What is the difference between these two? Well, the major difference is, is comes down to chemical structure, really. But a simple way for the public to really identify the difference between the two is your saturated fats tend to be more hard or solid. 17.36 Central African time we just heard from Vanessa Clark who's a dietitian in private practice in South Africa talking to my colleague Sanda Matzaunyane today. Now let's go back to that discussion where the Executive Director of the United Nations World Food Program, Ethrin Cousin, is in Madagascar for a three-day visit as the country comes to grips with the devastating impact of the three-year drought. Now the country's government recently expressed solidarity with other countries in the region afflicted by this year's El Nino weather pattern. To speak to us more about this, we now joined again on the line from Antenna River by Communications Officer for the World Food Program, David O. Um, David, I'm not sure what happened there with the line, but um, you were busy telling us what made this visit necessary. Well, uh, yes, as I was saying, she, um, the director um, of the World Food Program, is here in uh, Madagascar for the first time. She's long wanted to come here. And in addition to actually going down to the south to see conditions for herself, she wanted to meet um, donors, uh, other members of the UN community, and members of the um, Madagascar government. So that is, that is why she came here. Um, and she just arrived back in the capital today, having actually visited some of the hardest hit areas, including Chihombe district, which actually has the worst levels of food insecurity in the whole country. Mm. Um, maybe if you can just tell us how bad the situation is in Madagascar at the moment. Well, it's it's very severe, particularly um, in the south of the country, which, as you say, has been hit by by three years of of consecutive drought. Um, we're we're talking a part of the country which is semi-arid, um, and really uh, has very high levels of poverty in the population. Uh, the people there are really struggling um, to get by at this stage. Uh, they've planted. Uh, crops again and again only to see them fail and now we are really at the at the, well into the into the lean season which normally wouldn't begin until November or so um, but people really have depleted their food stocks and we we met a lot of people who were used to eating red cactus fruits that was pretty well their only um, their only food, babies even, consuming this food. So not getting the balanced diet they need to thrive. And um, unless unless uh, we really scale up our intervention as we're planning to do, um, as for next month, we're going to see the situation uh, worsening. And are they getting any help at all? Sorry, say again? Are the people of Madagascar getting any assistance at all from the international community? Yes, well, absolutely. I mean, the World Food Program is uh, providing food and where markets are, can, are functioning cash to people so that they can buy their own food. We also have a very extensive school meals program um, to give uh, children in school a daily hot meal. We're looking at scaling this up significantly as from next year. 
were working in partnership with other agencies, not alone, but also with other UN agencies, to give a more rounded response to, to the problem. And really looking, looking forward, not just trying to save lives here, but to change lives in the longer term so that people are better able, better equipped to stand up to future shocks such as the drought here, because a lot of people here believe this is the result of climate change and it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a problem that's set to plague not just this island, but much of Southern Africa for some time to come. Mm. Um, I imagine, though, that the assistance they're getting is not enough. They probably need more. David? All right, we seem to have lost David Orr there again. Um, he was uh, chatting to us about the effect of the drought in Madagascar and the visit by Ethrin Cousin, who is the director of the United Nations World Food Program. And she is in Madagascar to see the effects of the drought for herself. <laughs> This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. My name is Sipa Hot Sticks Mabuse, a South African musician and an African artist for that matter. You are listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. Pambi. My name is Yvonne Chaka Chaka from South Africa, but Africa is my home. You're listening to Channel Africa. The voice of the African Renaissance. My name is Habida, an African artist from Kenya. And you're listening to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. In an effort to encourage, promote, and celebrate African languages, a South African non-profit organization, Nali Bali, will this Friday host a storytelling competition in Johannesburg. The competition, dubbed Story Bosso, will be hosted in South Africa's 11 languages and is open to children, parents, caregivers, and anyone who has a story to tell. That is 11 official languages. More from the Johannesburg Support Coordinator for Nali Bali, Rechad Leroux. The word Nalibali derives from the Isikosa word that literally means here is the story if you translate it to English. So it is a national children's literacy campaign that is up and running in six of our provinces in South Africa. But we do aim for mother tongue development in all 11 official languages. How did this initiative come about? Why did you think of storytelling? Well, you know, if we think about our ancient histories as cultures, that is, I think, some that we all have in common as humans. Our forefathers sitting around the fires in the evening and telling stories and all of us have stories inside of us. It's a common genre for all of us. You know, we tell stories every day. Whether I tell you about my journey to the SABC and getting lost or whatever, that is already a story. It's not something that's unfamiliar. I'm sure in South Africa there are many people who have a story to tell. What are the characteristics you're looking for? Okay, so yes, last year we were quite surprised. We had a 
1,500 entries and we've actually broke that record this year. We are heading towards 2,000 stories. So we hope that by Friday we would have secured the 2,000 and we are calling on all South Africans out there from young to old, please mm-hmm. contribute. And there are basically four categories. It's either an original story that someone can tell in their mother tongue. It needs to be a South African language, one of our official languages. It can be the retelling of a story, maybe Goldilocks, that you want to tell in Isizulu, or it can be a narrative poem. So how long has the competition been running for? Well, this is the second year, and we do it in September, which is Heritage Month. I think it's wonderful just getting all South Africans out there to celebrate mother tongue and storytelling in mother tongue. It's storytelling. I'm sure everybody submits. You've had how many entries already? We are over 1,500. We're getting close to 2,000, so we are hoping to get to 2,000 by Friday. The selection process. How does that work? Everyone is welcome to enter their story. It goes to a national panel of judges. For people who are listening who cannot understand the Bosso name, can you please just <laughs> elaborate on that? Yeah, it is basically who's mm-hmm. the best. Mm-hmm. So it's that number one storyteller in South Africa. It is 17.44 Central African time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance. You just heard from Ray Khadleru. Uh, who is the Johannesburg Support Coordinator for Nali Bali and he was in conversation with Sihle Zuma 17.45 Central African Time it's time for Economic News here's Usani Matebula Thanks, Sfumilele, and good evening. Tanzania and the Democratic Republic of Congo signed a memorandum of understanding for joint exploration and development of hydrocarbons in Lake Tanganyika. The lake, which straddles the border between Tanzania, Democratic Republic of Congo, Burundi, and Zambia, is the world's second largest by volume and second deepest. Uganda will start producing oil soon, while Congo will begin its own oil production in the next few years. Uganda has announced in April that it will build an oil pipeline through Tanzania rather than Kenya, which had wanted to secure the export route. The pipeline will be completed in 2020 at an estimated cost of 3.5 billion US dollars. Interest in East Africa as a new hydrocarbon region has been heating up in recent years after major discoveries of oil in Uganda and natural gas in Tanzania and Mozambique. And speaking of Mozambique, the country's state-owned oil company, ENH, says it has signed a sales agreement with BP for the sale of liquefied natural gas from the South Coral Field. Italian oil firm Eni, the operator of the field, also signed the agreement. ENH says uh, the contract is valid for 20 years, covering the sale of all liquefied natural gas volumes that will be produced from the floating plant in the Coral Reef. And South Africa's worst growth says it's aiming to avoid any negative effects on trade and investment relations with the UK following their intended withdrawal from the European Union. The agency hosted a seminar for Cape businesses to highlight uh, the possible implications of the UK's exit 
from the EU. CEO of Westgrow, Tim Harris, says last year the Cape exports to the UK were valued at about 600 million US dollars, accounting for almost 40% of exports to the entire European Union terms under which we export to Britain are likely to change in the next few months. What we agreed is that post-Brexit, Western Cape exporters have at least as good terms. It's a really important market for us, and we have to make sure that government and business is responding to ensure that we're prepared for the fallout from Brexit. And South African President Jacob Zuma says marginal economic uh, growth will help fend off the possibility of the credit rating downgrades later this year. Zuma said this when uh, receiving new ambassadors and high commissioners accredited to South Africa in Pretoria. We have considerably alleviated our energy shortage. This has restored a sense of certainty in our economy, including a positive outlook for foreign direct investment. Our economy has registered a 3.3% growth in the second quarter, which will buttress the hard work that our government has been doing to consolidate our credit ratings. Sierra Leone will cut the cost of running its government by 30% to try to tackle an economic crisis triggered by falls in commodity prices in the aftermath of an Ebola epidemic. The measures will come into effect immediately and continue for the rest of the year. The budget for the first half of 2017 will face similar cuts. Spending in the 2016 budget was set at $831 million. The IMF forecasts uh, that uh, Sierra Leone's economy will recover by 4.3%. To Kenya now, where the biggest bank uh, by assets, KCB, expects its return on equity to drop by 4% this year after lending rates were kept. Last month, uh, the government kept commercial lending rates at 4%, above the central bank's benchmark rate, which is now at 10%. This sent shockwaves through the market and drove down bank shares prices. Financial indicators, the dollar trading at 13.66, South African rands at 10.32, Botswana Pula 9.88, Zambian Kwacha also at 0.77 to the British pound and 0.89 against the euro. Commodities market, gold $1,310, platinum $998 per fine ounce. The sport price of Brent crude oil is now at $50.73 per barrel. And that's your economics news. Thank you, Isani. It's time for Sports News. Here's Mosibudi. Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with tennis news. Maria Sharapova's two-year doping ban has been reduced to 15 months following her appeal to the Court of Arbitration for Sport. The five-time Grand Slam winner was initially banned by the International Tennis Federation for two years after testing positive for melodonium at the 2016 Australian Open. Now, the Russian will be able to return to the tennis court as early as the 26th of April 2017. Melodonium, a heart 
disease drug, also known as maldronate, became a banned substance on the 1st of January 2016. Sharapova said she had been taking the drug since 2006 for health problems and had not tried to use it as a performance-enhancing drug. The Court of Arbitration for Sports panel said it found Sharapova's case was not about an athlete who cheated, but added she bore significant fault for her violation. It added that Sharapova was at fault for not giving her agent adequate instructions in checking WADA's prohibited list and failing to supervise and control of the agent. On to football news. Former Cameroon international Rigobe Song has come out of a two-day coma and will be flown to France for treatment. The 40-year-old was admitted to Yaounde Central Hospital on Sunday after falling unconsciousness. Dr. Louis-Jos Bitang Mofak, the director of the hospital's emergency center, says Song had come out of the coma and the oxygen had been disconnected. His high blood pressure has returned to to normal and the cerebral hemorrhage has been controlled. Song played 137 times for his country and at spells with English clubs Liverpool as well as West Ham. He has been working as a coach for Cameroon's Football Federation following his departure as Chad coach. Well, back home, the South African Football Association President Dr. Danny Jordan has urged Bafana Bafana to make the country proud and qualify for the Russia 2018 World Cup. In a statement released on the association's website, Jordan said there was no reason as to why South Africa cannot compete in any major global tournaments on a consistent basis. Bafana Bafana departed for Burkina Faso on Tuesday via Abidjan, Ivory Coast. They are in the same group that includes Senegal as well as Cape Verde. Now to netball news. Uganda as well as Zimbabwe will battle it out on day three of the 2016 Netball Diamond Challenge currently taking place at the University of KwaZulu-Natal Westville Campus in Durban. Both teams are yet to register a win in the four-day tournament after defeats to South Africa's national netball team, the Small Proteas, as well as the South Africa's President Eleven team. Uganda head coach Rashid Muburu says it will be important to give a winning performance against the Zimbabwe. Yeah, today my girls are, are prepared to warm up, warm up properly. So they are, they, are, they are willing to beat Zimbabwe. You know, Zimbabwe, they normally play that speed game with no fashion of passes. So we, we have to beat them. And finally, it's all set for the Africa Blackpool Championship taking place in Kampala, Uganda. This after the local organizing committee confirmed the readiness for the 1st to the 6th of November Championship at the MTN Arena. 16 nations are expected to send their national teams to Uganda for the championship. Local organizing committee chairperson Douglas Mayanja says hotels, transport and train venues for the visiting teams are up to standard. Uh, we are in high gear. Right now we are in the finishing touches. We've secured uh, the playing venue, booked, fully booked for a whole week. Uh, we've secured hotels for all incoming. Uh, we've reserved for all incoming participants. We await, we await their confirmation. In our South Africa, the defending champions of the team event of the championship. Well, those are your sports news at the South. Stay tuned to Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance.
is Africa Digest. Your time is 17.55 Central African time. Let's recap our top stories. Mauritania's main opposition parties boycott President Oud Abdelaziz's call for national inclusive dialogue. The Kingdom of Lesotho is today marking its 50th anniversary of independence from Great Britain. And the UN officials say migrants and refugees are being held on the Pacific island of Nauru are completely without hope. That wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. For myself, Spumelele Zondi, producer Atlanta Matlango, technical producer Adrian Kenny, and the rest of the team, thank you very much for listening. Send us emails. We're on info at channelafrica.co.za, info at channelafrica.co.za. On Twitter, it's Channel Africa One. On SMS, plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five plus two seven eight two three three two five nine zero five we leave you with Ochuel at Bach by Wizkid it's legendary beats Thank you.
Kodi mulibwanje kulikonse kumene muli pa tsikula lero la 4 October 2016 takulandirani ndi manjawiri kundime ina ya zochitika mu Africa pa chinyanja service ya chano Africa kulusira mumzinda wa Johannesburg South Africa tikumveka pa wireless uh, wave pa 31 meter band ku Malawi Mozambique Zambia Zimbabwe ndi kumwela konse kwa Africa Tidinso pa DSTV pa channel 802 ndipa makina a internet pa www.channelafrica.co.za Mulindine Daniel Elishabanda Kalani Pomwepo Zochitika mu Afrika Titola ndiku simbangani mopanda manta Mosa kondera, mopanda chibuibu komanso mosa kuruvika. Ndife makutu ndi maso wa Afrika. Poyamba miduyankani. Ziwawa zabuka pa University of Vids ku South Africa. Msonkano oteteza nyama za mtengo ndi minyanga wata mumzinda wa Johannesburg, South Africa. And oposa 500,000 awapurumusa banyanja akufuna kupita kuulaya. Tsubanona zinkani mwa tsarane tsarane ndi chaipahiwa. Ziwawa zabuka pa University ya Vits ku South Africa. Opunzira atsugoleri awo ndo menyera ufulu anthu amba amenyana nda polisi. Police ina pulitsa utoketsa misonzi, mabomba opsezera chabe ndikuombira mholopolo za mpira potamangitsa oita zonetsero za ziwawa. Ajinyamata akubuduza galimoto ya polisi pamene amafuna kwa balalitsa. Atsogoleri aopunzira auza opunzira wonse kuti asalowe nkalasi abankuti opunzira ena atayamba mapunziro